This is the feast of the presentation of Christ in the temple. And it is one of the feasts of our Lord that with the liturgical renewal in the church 40 years ago, we can uh, celebrate on the Sunday if it falls on a Sunday. This uh, feast day is also called, particularly in the English tradition of which we're a part, Candlemas. Because by the Middle Ages, it was a time when we had processions, we blessed candles for various purposes, and it was a focus on uh, the feast as uh, a time of the illuminative presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, in the infant Jesus, and to the people that now understood that his birth had universal significance and that their responsibility was to find the ways and the means to make this light manifest. Uh, in my sermon, I'm going to preach briefly about the origin of the Feast of Candlemas, or of the presentation, to say something briefly about the reading from the prophet Malachi, or as my classmate at Neshota House many years ago said, the prophet Malachi. And then I'm going to spend most of the time on the gospel because it's full of interesting things, at least to me. So I thought I would try and uh, see if they make any sense to you. Uh, the liturgical historians tell us that the feast of the presentation of Christ in the temple or to the temple was, began uh, no later than the 4th century, than the 300s and probably was earlier than that. Its origins are in the Western Church mainly. It also is in the Eastern Church, but uh, they came a little later or have a slightly different uh, view and understanding of uh, what the, this feast is all about. And by the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, uh, the Feast of Candlemas uh, was uh, certainly universally celebrated in England and in Northern Europe. Candlemas was originally about the presentation. It sometimes was called the purification of Mary. And we may say something about that in a few minutes. I forgot to mention that uh, I also want to say something about ceremonies in general. And when we read about this kind of business that, you know, there's a view. Certainly it was abroad uh, during the Reformation period that ceremonies and uh, traditions and rituals uh, were uh, superstitious practices that we should not engage in. There is a wonderful book that was written in uh, 1994 by an English historian named Eamon Duffy called The Stripping of the Altars. And it was a, it was a history of the English Reformation period when there began to be some reforms instituted and he was asking the question, is the ordinary person on the street in England mired in superstitious practices and a completely ignorant understanding of the church's views about many things? Or is the story not quite the way in which uh, it was pictured by some of the more extreme reformers? And he does it by talking about a lot of devotional books that people used uh, a lot of ways that they uh, had themselves acquainted with 
uh, the theological outlook of the Christian church. He says this about Candlemas. The purification was marked by one of the most elaborate processions of the liturgical year when every parishioner was obliged to join in, carrying a blessed candle, which was offered together with a penny to the priest at Mass. We'll see the significance of this when we come to the story of the presentation of Christ in the temple. The blessing of candles and procession took place immediately before the parish Mass, and in addition to the candles offered to the priest, many others were blessed. The people then processed around the church, carrying lighted candles, and the Nunc Dimittis was sung, which we sang uh, in fragmentary form at the beginning of the liturgy today. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to enlighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. So in the reading from Malachi, uh, this reading I think is familiar to many, particularly who are musical, because the famous line here is, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? And that's the, uh, uh, this, what, what the basso sings in the oratorio uh, Messiah. So you know. In any case, Malachi is prophesying about the Messiah to come, to purify the temple, to enlighten people's minds, and to put them in a direction where they can now be as a people more congruent or in sync with the, the covenant with the promises of God. And Christian people will read this and they will say, you know, this is another one of these texts about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and we who have heard his words and seen his works understand that he is the one that is being described in the prophet Malachi doesn't matter, by the way, whether historically Malachi knew anything about Jesus and may, in fact, was referring to something in someone else, but that we would read this and say, well, that didn't happen, but we believe that it has happened in Jesus, in his words and in his works. We have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And so today in the gospel, Mary and Joseph and Jesus go to Jerusalem, to the temple, for Jesus to be presented in the temple. And there is a ritual in the Torah uh, with regard to how to do this. Now there's a controversy in the text. This may be more scholarship than you want. But, here it is. The King James Bible, which is the authorized version 
in the Church of England and in this country in the canon law, along with other versions, said, when the time had come, they went to Jerusalem for her purification. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph went to Jerusalem for her purification. The Bible that we read in church now is the new Revised Standard Version, which stands in a direct line from uh, earlier English Bibles, principally the King James Version, which is uh, still the authorized version. So it comes from the same family of English translations, and it uses the same texts in the original language. And so the NRSV says when the time had come for their purification. And on one level, it is a mistake. Because if Luke had read Leviticus, he would have known that it was Mary that was coming for her purification. So you could say that it is more correct in the King James. But the rub is, that their purification is in the earliest manuscripts. And the King James Version was produced by manuscripts no older than the 9th century AD. And since then, we have discovered manuscripts that are in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD. And the thing is this. Some people would say, well that special pleading or the people did that earlier, if you find one of those manuscripts in Italy and you find another one in uh, Alexandria and you find another one in uh, Antioch, it's very hard to say that those scribes got together and colluded in order to produce there. And yet at the same time, it appears that maybe Luke was a little hazy on the Torah. But he wasn't really that interested. He was speaking about the Holy Family as exemplars for the whole of the Christian world, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. So precision about the actual application of the Torah, in this case, may not have been his main interest. He was, of course, aware of the Hebrew Bible and very knowledgeable about it, and what he's talking about today is a parallel to somebody else in the Old Testament. And that is Samuel. And when Samuel was born, Hannah brought him to the temple in Bethel to be dedicated. Now we're going to meet in just a minute or two, two people who have come into the temple when Jesus is being pre presented Anna and Simeon. And in the Greek text where it refers to Anna, what has happened is that the accent over the first letter has been removed. And if it had remained, it would have been Hannah. So who is the parallel that Luke is drawing? Who, to whom is, is he drawing a parallel? So Hannah in the temple 
is going to be an example of patient waiting with regard to the way she understands the coming of the Messiah and being uh, now an eyewitness to the presentation. I mentioned to you that uh, February the 2nd is the Feast of the Presentation. But in this country, February the 2nd is also Groundhog Day. Some of you may uh, remember the Bill Murray movie called Groundhog Day, which is about a guy who has to keep living the same day over and over again until he gets it right. And there are a lot of people who believe that ceremonies and liturgical practices and so forth are just for that purpose, uh, doing them over and over again to get them right. But nobody has ever taught people explicitly that that's true. They have said that our worship is a reflection of our love of God and that we do it in thanksgiving to God for his many benefits. And so the Feast of Candlemas has something to do with, in physical terms, in movement, in light, and in music, making present the illuminative processes of God. And our desire through doing that year after year to be able in some way to uh, understand God's purposes more deeply and more fully, not to get our ticket punched. It's not for that purpose at all. Mary and Joseph came to the temple in faithful obedience. Elizabeth Johnson, a a well-known theologian in this country, says this about Mary's place in the story. Here the young friend of God, called to a prophetic work, who has sung her Magnificat, given birth, and pondered the meaning of it all, carries out with her husband the law of the covenant in ceremonies imbued with their people's profound gratitude for for God's gracious and liberating care. Depicting so clearly Mary's religious engagement in temple worship according to Torah, this text offers a strong antidote to a remembrance that would erase her Jewish identity and paint her as a Gentile Christian. One of the great centers of New Testament scholarship today is a desire to refocus our attention on the Jewish nature of Jesus' mission and ministry, and by extension, how we understand a new heaven and a new earth. Not by excluding that, but by including it. So Christianity is about all the Gentiles, and it's about all the Jews, and how we are one. The greatest ecumenical work that needs to be done in our time is reconciliation between Judaism and Christianity. It may seem an insurmountable task, but I believe that it is possible. Tradition and fulfillment are the two things intimately connected with the presentation of Christ in the temple.
I didn't mention this to you, but the, 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 what it says in Leviticus is the firstborn male child is to be brought into the temple and presented to the temple. And then the parents redeem the child by paying the priest five shekels and he gives the child back. And it is a reminder not just that they get the fee, but that your stewardship is involved in how you look after your kids. So based on our day and time and the utility of a story like this for us, it could have something to do also with stewardship. Stewardship of our families. Stewardship of everyone. Not just this business about the firstborn male child. That's rooted in, in, in an ancient past that doesn't have direct application to who we are today and how we relate to one another. But certainly for parents, it's an important thing to understand that if we dedicate our children to God by virtue of the fact that we believe that they're made in God's image, then we need to exercise some species of stewardship. And whether you have children or not, everybody needs to care about everybody. We need to look after one another in the best possible way. As my grandfather would have said, that doesn't mean you have to eat out of the same plate with them. <laughs> right? But it does mean that you should have some care and concern with their welfare as they should for yours. So this week, uh, open your prayer book. I, I hope you have a prayer book. Uh, uh, to uh, evening prayer, either in the first rite, rite one or rite two. And read the Nunc Dimittis. And think about being a light to enlighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. What that canticle says and what that canticle prays, it's one of the best ones, I think, in, in the canticles. On, on uh, the second Sunday of the month at Compline, we sing the Nunc Dimittis. Every sun, every uh, second Sunday at the office of Compline prayers for the close of the day, so that we sing that and understand it. There's also on YouTube a beautiful Nunc Dimittis, and I can't remember the the, the uh, composer, but it is a contemporary uh, Nunc Dimittis that was written by an English composer. And it was sung at the end of every episode of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I don't know if any of you ever saw that, those DVDs of Alec Guinness and uh, all about discovering the mole in the intelligence service in England. It's a very, very good series. It came out in uh, the late 1970s. And they sing this Nunc Dimittis at the end uh, of every episode. It's beautiful. You could probably Google it or put, put it in YouTube and you'll get the, you'll get the uh, Nunc Dimittis, but it's one of the best. And think also about um, our stewardship responsibilities to one another and uh, about all of us who seek to serve God and live lives congruent with his purposes. Amen. <clears throat>